All right, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm, the second Psalm, Psalm 2. And uh, this morning marks the first Sunday of the season of Advent. I know there may be some of you who come from a church background or tradition you've never, you've never really thought much about or, or even heard the word Advent. Um, the word Advent, is, it just comes from the Latin word, which means uh, arrival or coming. And so during this season, this is the season of Advent, we celebrate, of course, the arrival of the Christ, this mysterious and awesome and incredible incarnation. Um, but we don't just celebrate the first Advent, the first Advent, the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus, also gives us opportunity to look forward to the second Advent, which is the return of Christ. As Christians, we have a foot in two worlds, you might say. Uh, we have uh, our foot in the already of the cross and the resurrection, but we also uh, live in the not yet of Christ's return. And so theologians talk about this already not yet tension. Yes, Christ has come and he's conquered death and hell by virtue of his cross work, but at the same time, all is not right with the world. We know that, so we await for the not yet, the return of Christ. And really, as Christians, what we're living in is we're, we're, we're kind of caught in the middle. Uh, we look around and we see that and we don't have to look too far, really, to see things aren't the way they should be. We see people that we love who, who are sick and people who are dying, and we see hatred, and we see animosity, and we see racism, we see oppression, we see poverty. We see all of these things, and we say, yeah, this is not, this is not right. This is not the way that it should be. And so we see that all around us, and yet we still have hope because we see God's work in our lives. We see God bringing people to saving faith. Uh, we see God uh, restoring relationships. We see uh, God's work in our lives and the lives around us. And maybe you've had an experience recently where you just thought, that, that, that was of the Lord. That was, that was a God thing. There's no other way to explain it. How this worked out and that worked out and all of this on the heels of something else this was a God thing. And so even though we know, we see that things are not the way they should be, we still have the promise of hope. We know that God is at work bringing about redemption. And so there is, there's a rhythm, there's a, there's a rhythm to this season of Advent, and it's looking back at the birth of Jesus, and again, the mystery of the incarnation and all that means to us, and then looking forward to the return of Christ, where we will celebrate the arrival of of the promised one. And so, again, what we do during this season is, is, is we, look, we look back, we look forward, and we do so in the context of, of the overarching story of God's salvation. So we're going to get to the birth of Christ. That'll be part of it. But in order for us to understand the birth of Christ and all that it means, we have to see how it fits in the big story. So here's kind of the plan for the next five Sundays, including this one. This week is going to be chaos. Um, we're looking at chaos from Psalm 2 and uh, kind of how do we get in this situation, what's the state of the world, and, and so on. Um, and then the next week will be longing from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, the week after that will be anticipation. And longing and anticipation are, of course, they're kind of similar themes. Um, longing is this, this yearning for something, this, this burning desire for something or someone. Anticipation is longing plus expectancy. In other words, there's a re we're longing, but there's also a reason to believe that what we really are longing for could come to fruition. So chaos, longing, anticipation, 
and then the arrival of Christ, and then finally, uh, on December 29th, the return of Jesus. So that'll be the kind of the arc of this series. The Bible is the story, true story, of course, that tells us the way the world really is. The Bible is objective truth. It's the overarching story in which other, every other story must fit. The biblical story encompasses all of reality. It begins with the creation of all things. It ends with the renewal of all things. And in between, it offers really an interpretation of all the events of history, even the events of our own lives. I mean, think about it. If you're, if you're around somebody, you've ever been around someone when they're just diagnosed with cancer? How do, you, how do you make sense of that unless you can understand it in light of a bigger picture? Have you ever been around someone who's been uh, abandoned by a spouse? Maybe they've been married 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, 40 years. Early in my ministry, uh, I, would, I, I saw divorces happening, um, and this is only 20 years ago, but really mostly between the, age, the years of 5 and 10 years of marriage. Now I'm seeing divorces and abandonment happening from people that have been married 30, 40 years. You've been around someone who's been abandoned by a spouse after 40 years. How do they make sense of that? They can only do so if they do that in light of a bigger story. How do you, how do you help someone who's, who's gone through a terrible crisis and a totally unexpected tragedy? It only makes sense if it's considered in light of the big story. So we're looking at the, the overarching story the story of all of history, the story of the Bible, the story in which our own stories must fit. The Bible answers the questions, those, those life's ultimate questions. How did we get here? Is there a God? If there's a God, what is He like? What does He require of us? What's wrong with the world? Is there a remedy for the problem of the world? And, and what's next? What's after this? So the Bible answers those questions in a, in a powerful way. The problems with our world, of course, are so big and the devastation so rampant because of the results of sin that God himself came down to fix the problem. God himself came down. This is what we celebrate at Advent. God with us. This is the story of Christmas. God visited us in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's start this morning as we look at this big overarching story with this idea of chaos. Psalm The second psalm, uh, let me begin by reading verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord reads this way. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and testify or terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, when we read the Psalms, what we have in front of us is Israel's worship book, you might say. And so the Psalms teach us how to worship God. I have in my own prayer life a prayer prompter and of the number of categories, it, my, my prayer life begins with confession, so confessing my, confessing my sin to the Lord. And then as I work my way through, I get to the point of worship. It's on my, on my prayer list. which I, But there are times, I have to be honest with you, when I try to engage in worship and I really don't know what to say. 
I mean, I don't really know even how to go about it. And so what I'll do is I'll refer to the Psalms. The Psalms teach us how to worship. The Psalms teach us how to pray, and they actually give us permission to be honest with God. You ever prayed in such a way that you said something that kind of made you feel uncomfortable? Like, I don't know, should I be saying that to God? The Psalms give us permission to, to vent, to be open with God. To, he, can, he can handle it. There's a, I'm developing a friendship with a, another guy, another pastor in this area. He's a pastor of another church and moved down from Washington and um, uh, just enjoy this guy. And we, We've been texting back and forth. Well, he, he, just two weeks ago, his, a very good friend of his and a fellow partner of ministry died uh, as a result of suicide. And, of course, this guy is absolutely stunned and, and shocked and, and grieving over this. And so he returned to participate in the memorial service in, in Tacoma, Washington, and, and had to provide some encouragement for people. And he sent me a text uh, about a week and a half ago that said, one thing I know for sure is that God can handle my questions. God can handle my honesty right now because I don't, know, I don't know what to say to myself. I'm not really sure how to encourage hundreds of people. I don't know how to make sense of a guy who was being an encouragement to other people, pastoring other people, and then took his own life. But he said, I know that God can handle my honesty. And this is what the Psalms, they teach us, they give us an example of what it means to, to wrestle with to pray to, to cry out to God. The Psalms also give us some insight into the history of the nation of Israel and how God's people responded to trials. Psalm 2, I just read the first six verses. Psalm 2 is written by David. Now, it doesn't say that in Psalm 2, but the book of Acts tells us, the book of Acts actually quotes this psalm and tells us that it's a psalm of David. Uh, And David, as you may recall, if you've spent any time in the Old Testament, David was a king in Israel who conquered a lot of nations. David was a mighty warrior. This is why so many parents named their children, their their sons, David, because David was a man of great character at times. He was a warrior. He was a guy who, of course, he got into some stuff, right? He rebelled against God. He did some terrible things, but he also was a guy who, who fought, and he was a warrior for God, defeated the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Jebusites, and the list goes on. So he was a guy who conquered the nations. So on one level, this psalm that I just read is a psalm about David. The Lord did install David as king, and he put him in his holy city of Jerusalem. David conquered the Jebusite forces and actually made Jerusalem his his dwelling place, his city, the capital city. And the nations did conspire against David, didn't they? They wanted to take him down, which is no surprise, really. It was a natural thing then, and it's a natural thing now. If you are a person who's exalted in a certain position, there are always people around plotting to take you down. That's why kids play King of the Hill. We play that. Now kids, they just do it electronically, which doesn't have the same uh, impact. We, we had somebody who was, who was the king, who was at the top of the mound or whatever, and, and we had to tackle that person, take that person down. It's It's the way it works in history. The one who reigns, the one who is exalted, people conspire. They want to take that person down. Maybe you feel like even this morning you don't reign over anything, but you feel like people are there. They want to see you fall. They want to see you destroyed. Everybody wants to test the king. Everybody wants to take down the king, and such was the case with David. So this is very much about David on one level, this psalm. But it's more than that. It's more than that. When we read the Psalms, not only do we learn Israel's history, but more importantly, 
Through the Psalms, we learn about Jesus and his completed work. Believe it or not, the Psalms are about Jesus. Jesus is the anticipated one. Jesus is the referential center of the book of Psalms. And our goal is to learn to see Jesus in them. In fact, the goal when we read the Bible or teach the Bible is never primarily to find a moral of the story, some sort of nugget on how to live better. That, that's moralism. It doesn't help anybody. Just say, okay, I want this one nugget so I can go and just live. I can just tweak my life a little differently, live a little differently. That's not the point. It's not about how to, how to become a better person necessarily. The goal is to see the beauty of God's salvation and how the good news about Jesus actually transforms and renews every aspect of our lives. And in fact, every aspect of the whole world. This cosmic renewal. So we read the Bible and we read them to see Jesus, who is the center, who is the hero, who is the locus, the object of the Scriptures. And we see in the Psalms God's incredible work of rescuing a people through this promised deliverer. As the greatest theologian to ever come from America, Jonathan Edwards, once said about the Psalms, he said, the main subjects of these songs are the glorious things of the gospel. We read the Psalms to see God's work throughout history, rescuing a people through the redemption, through the work of His promised one. The Psalms teach us about ourselves, our world, God's salvation, and of course, about Jesus, His Messiah. And here in Psalm 2, the writer tells us about David. In fact, David is the one doing the speaking for part of it. But this psalm would find its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And I say, how do you know the psalms are about Jesus? Like, why I was preaching, I said this in a different sermon from a different text one time, and this lady came up to me, and she must have been in her late 70s, and she was visiting from another state. She was visiting from North Carolina, and I was in California, and she said, I've never heard anybody ever say that the psalms are about Jesus. Like, how do you say that? Well, there are a number of ways that we see this in the Scriptures. One is we see the, 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 what God says to the, the serpent, the curse. We see uh, and, and the one, the delivering one who would come. We see that really fleshed out in part in the Psalms. One of the reasons we can say the Psalms are about Jesus is because Jesus himself says, the Psalms are about me. Remember, he's having this, this dialogue, this back and forth, this very contentious debate and argument with the, the Pharisees. In Matthew 22, and Jesus confounds them by saying, by quoting Psalm 110, and he says, actually, this is about me. This psalm is about me. Or like in, in Mark's gospel, Mark 15, when Jesus is being crucified, he quotes Psalm 22, and he says, this psalm is about me. He quotes the psalms in his ministry, and he says, and of course the people don't realize it, they don't expect it, they were never expected to be, to be fulfilled in Jesus, but he said, this is actually about me. So one of the ways that we know the Psalms are about Jesus is because he says they are. Another way is because we see some thematic elements that occur that start in the Old Testament, we see them as they're really fleshed out in, in the Psalms. And another way that we see that a Psalm is about Jesus is if the language used in reference to a king, for example is so incredible, it's so awe-inspiring, it's so inflammatory that we say this can't just be about an earthly king. This is the way it is with Psalm 2. The language is remarkable. The things said about this king, about this anointed one, are far too great 
to be a description of just an earthly king. And the fury, the anger reserved for those who rebel against this king demonstrate this can't just be about an earthly king. You know, David and Solomon, great kings, they had people, they had nations that rebelled against them and they had, they had nations that they had taken captive that, that sought to defeat them and so on. So they had people who wanted to overthrow them and so on. Um, but neither David nor Solomon, nor really any other king, for example, could say that God said specifically to me, you are my son, you are my anointed one. Verse 2 says the nations take counsel against the Lord's anointed. The Hebrew word for, the, for anointed is Mashiach, Messiah. In Greek, it's Christos, it's the Christ. The people are uniting against the Lord and His Messiah, and they've been doing that since the moment He was born. Now, here's our first point this morning, and we'll go quickly through these. The peoples of the earth have rejected God's King in a revolt that climaxed at the birth of Jesus Christ. The people, peoples of the earth have rejected God's King, and that started. What happened when Jesus was born? What did they try to do? They want Him dead. Since the time he was born, the pe- people have been rejecting, they've been revolting against this king. This is the way that it's been, really. Not just since Jesus was born, but people have always, since creation, revolted against. So especially since the fall, every human being revolted against this living God. See, the, the most basic impulse of the human heart, and we know this if we're willing to admit it, the most basic impulse of the fallen human heart is to rebel against authority, especially ultimate authority. We don't want, let me just say, I'll personalize it and just speak for myself. I don't want somebody telling me what to do. I don't want somebody telling me, you must do this, you must do that, because when somebody says that, I want to do the opposite. And I could give you a dozen embarrassing stories in my own life when someone says, you must do this, and I immediately conclude, well, I won't be doing that. Because that's the way our hearts work. When someone, we, we rebel against authority. I think maybe I've told this story, but one of the most recent things, when I took one of my kids to the doctor's office, there's this huge, I don't know, 10,000-gallon uh, fish tank. I have no idea how many gallons it actually was, but it's a massive thing. And a little tiny sticky note on the glass that said, in bold letters with an exclamation point, do not touch. Well, forget it. I had to touch the thing. I was going to touch that thing. I, don't, I, I actually don't like, I mean, I don't have any th- sort of natural desire to touch fish tanks, but because that was on there, I had to do it. We have a natural revulsion against authority. Every single person is born in revolt against God and His anointed. The book of Romans tells us in so many places that we are born at enmity. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who goes after God. There's nobody who wants to be under the rule of God. We want the opposite. We don't want God telling us. We want any authority, any ultimate authority telling us, you must do this. We, by nature, hate, and I use that word intentionally, being under absolute authority. We don't want to be ruled by anyone. What's the most common phrase that kids say when they're little? You may debate, you know, what your kid's first words were. Maybe, if, maybe you say, if you're a mom, you say, well, easy, it's easy. My first word, kid's first words were mama. And, and maybe if you're, you're, you're a father, you say, no, it was dada. Or maybe for some of you it was bama or whatever it was, right? You say, it's got to be this. 
Uh, you may debate, you may go back and forth, what were my kids? But, it's, but I know for sure what our first kid's sentence was. I'm not, I don't remember their first word, but I know their first sentence. It was all by self. All by, let me help you, let me help you tie your, no, all by self, all by self. Let me help you do this, no, all by self. I did, the kids, what they were saying is, I don't want your help. I don't want you showing me, teaching me, telling me. I want to do it by myself. I don't need your help. I can do this on my own. And this is the cry of the human heart from birth. I don't need your help. What's the most cherished value in the Western world? It's independence. I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody else to tell me what to do. We don't want to be ruled. Now, as you've heard me say before, very few people are against, very few, more now than in recent years, but very few people are against the concept, the idea of a God. So most people can accept. Most people, and I understand atheists and new atheists, and I get all that, but most people can accept the idea of a God. But a real, living, personal God who actually says, you must love me above all else. A God whose voice thunders from Mount Sinai and says, you do this and don't do that. You do this and you will live. You do this and you will die. People don't want that God. A God who determines what's right and wrong and says what's right and wrong. We revolt against that sort of God. We reject His authority. And even today, certainly today, nations are warring against God, persecuting followers of His Son. Do you realize there, there, there are more governments today that are hostile towards God's Son than at any time in history? More governments that are against Jesus, persecuting Christians than at any time in history. More people who are against Christ, there are more governments, there are more uh, nations, more people, more families. We see this war against God being waged by Hollywood, by the academic world. A friend of mine who's 25 or 24 said he went away to university and, um, and he, had some, he had a professor, it's almost unbelievable, I trust this guy, a student, this, he said he had a professor who was trying to persuade his own class that incest was a good thing and should be allowed. You, you know, in the secular, in the universities, you know, the, the philosophical departments at most secular universities are a wasteland in terms of spiritually speaking. So, so the nations have not stopped waging war against God. We see, it in, we see God, the war against God being waged in our own hearts, in my own heart. When I believe that, when I insist that, my way is better than God's way. My way is wiser than God's way. Now, of course, another way that we rebel against God, which is maybe much less on the radar, is when, and I, but I think it's actually the most prevalent and, dare I say, the most damning, and that is when we try to save ourselves. We don't really want to believe and trust in what Christ has done. We want to cling to what we've done. I mean, of course, we don't. This is, this is the, the quietest but this is, this is the most devastating when we, we, we try to save ourselves clinging to our own goodness, our own ingenuity, our own righteousness. Now, what is the Lord's response to all this? Look at verse 4 and 5 again. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God laughs at those who plot against him. Now, not in... Hilarity, 
okay? He's not laughing as though he's just heard a terrific joke. He's laughing in contempt. We are, after all, talking about the creator of the universe. How foolish do you have to be? How filled with hubris do you have to be? Does a person, does a nation, does a people have to be to believe that they can actually triumph over the God of the universe? God says, and again, it's not hilarious to him, but the foolishness strikes him as ridiculous. When people plot against God, again, he laughs, but his laughter will turn to fury, the psalmist tells us, because his absolute holiness moves him to judge sinners. And he has installed a righteous king to bring about justice. Here's our second point. The king that God has installed, God's son, the Messiah, will proclaim and perform all that God has purposed in history. Now, that's going to take some explanation, I know. The reason I like to take, again, a big picture view of Christmas, and I know there are a lot of, you know, creative ways and, and I don't know, I fancy myself as a bit of a creative, and I may not really be, but I like to write and whatever. But there are a lot of creative ways we could do this, right? We could look at, and a lot of people do, they look at Christmas through the eyes of the angels, through the eyes of the shepherds, uh, through the eyes of the donkeys, or whatever people do to make it, you know, new. And, and, and we could do that, but I think unless we look at it from a big picture lens, from a wide angle lens, from the, from the, from the meta narrative, the overarching story, we'll never really see the majesty, the beauty, the power, the glory of the incarnation. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, God has had a plan and a purpose to rescue a people and to forever punish his enemies, those who will not repent and turn to him in faith. Even though the overwhelming theme of Scripture is that God is love, he is faithful, he is uh, kind and he is merciful and he is gracious. We also see and we can't ignore it. God is a God who demonstrates wrath. Now God's never called. It's never the scriptures. They never say God is wrath. They do say God is love. His preeminent characteristic, we might say. But God is also a God who demonstrates wrath. God will not allow those who mock him, who rebel against him who do not repent, who do not turn to him, he will not allow them to have the final say. In fact, the scriptures are clear that those who defy God with their lives will experience his judgment. But God is also determined to make the nations the heritage of the Son. People from the ends of the earth will be his possession. They will belong to him and he will be their God. Look at verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, now, who do you suppose is speaking here? Well, certainly David is speaking, right? I mean, he wrote this psalm. There are times when David's the author of the psalms. But this verse, verse 7 says, the Lord said to me, who's saying that? Is, it, is, it, is David saying that? Well, again, there, there are times in the Bible when Israel's king is referred to as God's son. There are times in the Bible when the, when the nation of Israel is referred collectively as God's son. But who can say that God has directly spoken to him and said, 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. When we read the New Testament, we see the Father saying this to Jesus. In fact, pastor and scholar Derek Kidner writes, For any earthly king, this form of address could bear only the lightest interpretation. But the New Testament holds us to its full value, which excludes the very angels, to leave only one candidate in possession. At Christ's baptism and transfiguration, the Father proclaimed him both son and servant in words drawn from this very verse. In other words, David is the one speaking in this psalm, but he is saying words that truly belong to Jesus the Christ. In essence, Jesus says, I will tell of the decree all that the Father has purposed through eternity past, the Son will proclaim. But He won't just proclaim. He will also perform. He will proclaim. In other words, He, he spent His earthly ministry, Jesus did, telling people about God's salvation, preaching the good news. When others tried to pull Jesus in a thousand directions, He said, no, that's, that's not why I came. I came to preach a message of hope and forgiveness. Remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord, and this is actually a fulfillment of of an Old Testament passage as well. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Psalm 2 actually tells us that the greater King, Jesus, will tell of God's decrees. He will proclaim this incredible work of redemption that God is doing. He will invite people to experience God's forgiveness. But again, he won't just proclaim. He will also perform or execute God's uh, purposes. Jesus came not just to talk about God's salvation, but to become God's salvation by virtue of the incarnation. Christ came to the earth to do all that we failed to do, all that God asked us to do, perfectly obey Him in every way, Jesus came to proclaim and to perform God's salvation. Christ was perfectly obedient so that those who put their faith in Jesus could be counted perfect before God. There was a lady in a church that I served several years ago who was a, she was a Hall of Fame athlete. In fact, she was inducted into the Indiana Hall of Fame. She was one of the greatest uh, long-distance runners in Indiana history. And not only was she a great runner, she then became one of the greatest high school uh, coaches in history. She, she led her cross-country team in Indiana to five state championships. She was, again, she was, uh, she was a Hall of Fame uh, member and so on. And her name was Karen. And one time I asked Karen, I said, how do you, like, how do, you do it? I mean, how, how do you get you're, you're, these kids ready to, to run long distances and to overcome obstacles. And I said, you must be some amazing motivational speaker. And she said, she said, John, here's the thing with motivational speeches. Like they only last for just a minute. They don't, they don't last very long. Yeah, people get all riled up. They get fired up. They're ready to take on the world and, and run and come in first place. But, he said, but she said, as soon as they hit that first obstacle, as soon as they get winded, as soon as they go up that first hill, there's no motivational speech that does anything. It just doesn't help. I said, well, what, well how do you do it then? What, how do you inspire and motivate and mobilize and get these, these students to do that? She said, the only thing that will motivate a runner when the race gets extremely hard and the hills seem insurmountable and pain creeps in, and uh, she said, the only thing that will motivate a runner is the recognition 
that I've actually been here before and succeeded. I've been at this mile marker before and I've surpassed it. I've faced a hill like this and I've climbed it. I've suffered from the same exhaustion and I've prevailed. She said, that's the only thing that will sustain a long-term runner. But here's the deal. For the Christian, it's so much richer than that. It's so much better than that. For the Christian, what sustains us is not I've been down this hill, I've passed this, whatever. What sustains us is the recognition that somebody else has already perfectly succeeded for us and in our behalf. So when we suffer and we think, I just can't go on, it's not by saying, you know, I've been here before. No, it's saying, I know someone else who's suffered fully, completely, in a way that I can't even imagine. And he was faithful to God so that his faithfulness could become mine. When we go through this, we have this unbelievable temptation and we think there's no way that I can ever endure, I can, I can ever stand against this, this temptation. What we remember is there was someone who was tempted in every way that we were and yet remained without sin. And he was actually tempted way more than we were because we always give in eventually. But he never gave in. And so his temptation was stronger and more real, and yet he never, ever succumbed to it. When we're rejected by a friend, by a sibling, by a spouse, by a neighbor, we can say, you know, I know someone who was rejected in a way that I can't even fathom. He was rejected for me. And when we're motivated and empowered by Christ in us, Christ's union with us, the one who has succeeded, and overcome every obstacle, then we can have victory. We're not empowered by, as Karen, now this may work in long distance running. I've never coached anybody in that way. But we're not empowered by saying, yeah, I've been over that hill. No, well, we're empowered by ultimately, in life that is, by the recognition that someone has actually surpassed that obstacle. Someone has endured that temptation without failing. Someone has actually overcome that setback, that hurdle. And he did it for me, and now he is united with me, empowering me, equipping me, enabling me. But that necessary, realizing that necessarily means coming to the end of ourselves, repenting of all those areas where we cling to our own strength, our own ability, our own wisdom, giving up on our efforts to save ourselves. Now let's look at the last section here, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And then, that's not the end. There's one other phrase. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Be wise and warned are popular expressions in the wisdom literature. We see it in the, we see it in the Psalms. We see it in the Proverbs. We see it a little bit in Ecclesiastes. They indicate that now is the time to listen. Yeah, I know, you've heard it all before. You've heard it before, and you, you, you grew up in a Christian home, and you know what people say, and you've heard your teachers. Now's the time to listen. Be warned. Now is the time to respond. Now is the time to turn from our rebellion and serve the Lord with fear, the psalm says. But how do we reconcile this with what John says, Jesus' best friend, disciple, when he says, perfect love casts out fear? Well, the one who has been reconciled to God in Christ does not need to fear the wrath of God. 
God's wrath was satisfied by the cross work of his son. In fact, the very reason that Jesus was born was to die. So those who put their faith in Jesus, they don't need to fear God's wrath. We don't need to fear God's eternal punishment. We don't even need to fear God's judgment. But we do need to always have what the Puritans called a reverential sentiments. Reverential sentiments. In other words, this recognition that this God that we're talking about is the all-powerful creator and king. He's the one who spoke the word and the world was made. He's the one who, who says to people who rebel against him, he tells the earth to open up and they're swallowed alive. He's the one who does, Psalm 115, whatever he pleases. He is the great king. He's the one, yes, he is loving and he is merciful and he is patient and he is kind, but he's also called an all-consuming fire. He is a God against whom no one can rightly stand. And I think in this age, and you can call this age, you know, people, it's post-modernity, it's post-everything, whatever, but I think in some ways we live in the age, what I would call the age of sarcasm. And what I mean by that is, you know, whether it's media or TV or our relationships, and I'm not against sarcasm. I think sometimes it's, it can be rightly used or whatever. But it's, it's, we, don't want to take, we don't want to take anything too seriously because then we'd be, we might be extra. We don't want to be too serious. We don't want to be, don't want to be too devoted, too committed because then we might be uh, labeled a fanatic. And so we always kind of keep you know, close to the vest a sarcastic comment, a throwaway comment or whatever. But in this age, it's easy to forget that the God who made the world is not a God to trifle with. He's not a God to take lightly. He's not a God that we put on a shelf and we sort of go and adorn when we want to. He is the king of the universe. He is the creator of the world. He is the one that when we, when we fail to repent, we say, I'm going to do it my way. We stand on our own. We're actually railing against, waging against this God. This psalm also tells us we are to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling, and to kiss the Son. Now, the kiss in the Scriptures, the kiss is a symbol of a variety of things, depending on, on where you turn. Um, the kiss in the Scriptures is a symbol uh, at times of repentance, like in Luke 7, the poor woman who came into the house of Simon and kissed Jesus' feet, her tears were evidence of her repentance. Thus Jesus said to her, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. So sometimes the kiss in the Bible is a symbol of repentance. Sometimes it's, the kiss is actually a token of forgiveness. Remember the prodigal son? The prodigal came back home to his father after, after his confession. He received, he, his father runs out to him and kisses him, demonstrating that his, his forgiveness. He gives him a ring, a robe, shoes on his feet, and so on. In the New Testament letters, uh, the epistles, the, the kiss is a symbol of affection. Right? Paul says at the end... Um, he says, a couple of the epistles greet one another with a holy kiss, Corinth and Rome. But here in Psalm 2, the kiss, the kiss of the Son, is an expression of loyalty and complete dependence. It's a recognition that there is no refuge from Christ, only in Christ. Against those who continue to reject Him and rebel against Him, the Son's anger is fierce and it cannot be averted. This is a warning to those who have never, with brokenness and contrition over sin, acknowledged their rebellion and kissed the Son. In other words, demonstrated their faith 
their, their ultimate dependence in the work of Jesus. This is a warning. And the warning really is, you cannot escape the wrath of God. If you try, you should brace yourself because God may act at any moment to bring you down. So it's a warning. But it's also, along with the warning, it is an invitation for those, verse 12, to take refuge in Him, which is a reference to saving faith. We see this language in the Gospel of John and Ephesians. For those who cling to Christ in faith, those who run to Him, those who take refuge in Him, which is depending on Him and no one else or nothing else, there is peace, joy, and the promise of eternal life. All who run to Him will be received. Here's our final point. The one who warns us to end our rebellion rejects no one who takes refuge in Jesus Christ, the true King. Now this is good news for the broken. This is good news for those who have been crushed by something they've done. Maybe, maybe it's a secret sin. Maybe it's a sin pattern that they, they think, I'm, I, there's no way that I can be forgiven. The one who, who warns against judgment also receives all those who take refuge in Jesus. This is a word of life to those who are crushed by the endless cycle of sin and shame. You know, you, you sin and you feel so horribly about it and, and guilt is just, it's, it's oppressive and it seems relentless and you see God's forgiveness and there's a bit of a relief there and there's, there's joy and then you go sin again and you say, it's just worse. You say, how can I do this again? This is a word of life to those who are crushed by the endless cycle of sin and shame. This is an unparalleled offer to the hurting, to those who lack peace. For those who confess their sin, their wretchedness before a holy God, and trust in Jesus Christ as the one who came, who lived and died for their forgiveness, there is refuge from the hopelessness and the guilt and the shame of this uneven world. There is forgiveness, and it's not a fickle forgiveness. It is a once-for-all forgiveness, complete absolution for all of our offenses and sin against God. So much so that if you put your faith in Christ this morning, God will never hold your sin against you again. Satan may hold it. In fact, he will hold it against you. Satan will hold your sin against you, and he will try to discourage you by guilt and shame. And maybe your spouse will hold it against you, and maybe she brings it up. Maybe he trots it out in front of you at the worst time. And maybe your, your parents will hold it against you. There's something you're, that you've done. They won't forgive you. They keep bringing it back. And maybe your own children, maybe they hold it against you. They say, yeah, but remember when. Maybe you have people all around you who will hold your sin against you, but this is a promise from God. He will never hold your sin against you. It is as far from you as the east is from the west. It is forgotten by God because your rebellion, your sin, your offense, just like my rebellion and my offense was taken care of on the cross for those who believe. And so there's great hope this morning. Yeah, this is a true warning. We don't want to gloss over. We don't want to run past it. This is a warning. If you are here this morning and you are not, you're not trusting Christ alone, you've not turned from your rebellion, you have reason to be afraid. But if you've turned to Christ, for those who have kissed the Son, 
those who have run to Jesus Christ in absolute dependence. You have nothing to fear. Not the wrath of God, not death, not losing your salvation. You have nothing to fear. You say, well, how do I know if I've, if I've really, if I've broken, if I have true faith? Here's how you know. Do you consider yourself a pretty good person? When you look around, are you convinced that you're better than most in the room? You have fairly high morals and standards by which you live. Do you feel like when it comes to getting into heaven, you've done a lot more than most people to get there? Or do you believe that you're such a helpless sinner that you have no hope of getting into heaven, no hope of ever being right with God, except that Jesus died for you, that Jesus was born in an animal stable. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling all the requirements of the law. He resisted temptation to the point that he never gave in to it. He never sinned. He lived for you. He died. For, are you aware of how much you have hated God and bristle at the idea of being under someone else's rule? And I would say, if you're in the former category, if you're in the first category... And your normal rhythm of thought is, you know, I'm actually pretty good here. Because when I look around, I see people who are a lot worse than I am. Surely I've done enough. You've never really been broken by the law and run to Jesus in faith. You've never really kissed the sun, metaphorically speaking. But if you're here this morning and you know something of your own brokenness, your own sinfulness, and your own hatred for being under an ultimate authority, but you've, but you've run to Jesus as your only hope then yeah, you have, the, you have the faith in Christ that this passage talks about. You've kissed the sun and you have no reason to fear. Let's pray.